Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk. That's on page 785. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one uh, right in front of you. Grab that and turn to page 785. Otherwise, let's look at Habakkuk beginning at chapter 1, verse 12. If the children who are going to practice their songs, that you can go ahead and dismiss them at that time. They'll be brought back in here. The children who are in the nursery will be picked up and returned back to the nursery as well. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and I'm going to read down through verse 5 of chapter 2. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes his offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. You may be seated. Father, we're grateful to have your word, for there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. And Father, we're thankful that, that these words that are true, while they were penned a long time ago, they are alive and, and relevant and necessary for us today. So help us 
Help us in these moments together that we would consider these words that we've just read and that you would show us wonderful things. In fact, you would change us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. We began the book of Habakkuk last week, and Lord willing, the plan is to finish the book of Habakkuk next week. Habakkuk, from last week, we noted that uh, it begins with a great deal of confusion for Habakkuk. He sees the Assyrian nation falling. He sees the Babylonian nation rising. He's wondering where God is at in that whole mess. God's silence perplexes him, and yet after God breaks his silence and reveals to Habakkuk what he's going to do, Habakkuk is even more stunned and confused than he was with God's silence. The solution seems more confusing and perplexing to him than the silence itself. Back now then, in what we've read this morning, verses 12 of chapter 1 through verse 1 of chapter 2 is Habakkuk's response to what the Lord had said in 5 through 11 of chapter 1. And then we, we, we didn't read all of it, and we, we won't consider all of it, but in 2.2 through 2.20, uh, the Lord's explanation to Habakkuk's response Stating what will happen, but also explaining to Habakkuk the need to trust him. Now let's look at these one at a time. First of all, uh, in verses um, 1, 12 through 2, 1, I'm just going to call that responding to God's ways. As God has explained himself in 1, 5 through 11, Uh, Habakkuk responds to that, and he's very stunned and very confused, and we'll we'll see why he's stunned and confused in a moment. But then then the second thing I want us to look at, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, is something of the importance of resting in God's ways. Habakkuk states out loud, beginning in verse 12, what he is thinking, what he is trying to figure out in reference to the Lord. He's trying to make sense of what the Lord is doing. He's trying to make sense of that because in verses 12 and and part of verse 13, uh, he, he knows some things that are true about the Lord. And yet the things he knows that are true about the Lord, the things that he will state that he knows that are true about the Lord, don't seem to be jiving with or meshing with what he sees unfolding around him. And to describe a bit of that in the second part of verse 13 and then verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Lord, this is what I know is true about you. And he states some of these things that he knows to be true about the Lord. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my my Holy One? O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. O Lord, my rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk knows that The Lord is the God who judges the wicked. 
Secondly, look at verse, the first part of verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He knows that God has ordained the judgment of wicked of the wicked. He knows that God's nature and character is so pure and holy, it cannot associate with that which is evil and wicked. It won't even look that way. Perhaps a third thing he understands about the nature and character of God, that God ordains the judgment of the wicked, that God is pure, so pure he cannot associate with the wicked. He says in the second part of verse 13, we, uh, the second part of verse 12, we shall not die. He knows that he's in God's hands. He knows that God is, is faithful to his covenant people. These are wonderful things to know about God. These are things that God's word teaches us about our God, that, that, he or, that he is just, that he ordains the judgment of the wicked, that he is holy, he's, he's too pure to associate with, the, with evil, and that he is, he is faithful to, to provide and preserve his people. And yet what is true in, in Habakkuk's time is often very true in our time. There's those things that we know are true about God, that God's word teaches us. And yet, and yet there are times when we look around and it seems as though everything we think we know to be true about God that his word has taught us, it seems like just the opposite is playing out in the world around us. Lord, I know these things are true about you, but, but Lord, I also see these things happening around me that seems to contradict uh, what I know to be true about you. Verse, second part of verse 13, where he says that your eyes are, are pure, uh, too pure to see evil. You cannot look uh, at wrong. So, so why, why are you idle? Why do you idly look at traitors? And why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up? It, it appears as though the evil and the wicked are winning, that, that, that they are over, the, the evil is overtaking your people. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. It appears as though no one in, is in charge. It appears as though no one is ruling over us, your people. We're just aimlessly swimming around in this crazy ocean. Verse 15, I think he refers to the, the evil ones and what they are doing he says, uh, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. So Nick was, we're like fish with no leader, and the enemy is like a fisherman with a hook, and he's just pulling us out and devouring us right and left. It appears as though the wicked are victorious. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. In other words, the evil seem to be victorious, and the evil now are gloating in their victory. Then one last thing he wonders about in verse 
17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing forever? How long will what it appears to be unfolding continue to be unfolding? Then verse 1 of chapter 2, so I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what uh, I will answer concerning my complaint. Lord, here's what I know to be true about you, and yet here's what I see happening all around me. I'm... I'm going to wait for an answer. Have you ever felt the the tension between what we know to be true about God, that his word has taught us these things? He is good, he's holy, he's just. He takes care of his people. We, we believe these things because his Bible teaches us these things. And yet, do you look around the world and see, it seems as though everything but those things are true about God. You feel overwhelmed and perplexed and, and discouraged. It appears as though no one is leading us. It, it appears as though the, the, the wicked are, 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 are victorious over us, and they, they gloat in that victory, and, and it just seems like it goes on that way forever. We don't know when it will end. If you feel that way, if you think that way, then you are responding to God's ways the same way that Habakkuk struggled to make sense of God's ways. Take heart. You and I are not the first people to be disturbed and perplexed over the mysterious ways of God. And and, and just as a sidebar, though, the challenge for us is to, is to where will we reach for our final conclusions about God? Will we, will we look at our experiences and then, and, then, and then interpret who God is in light of what we think we know because this is what we see unfolding? Will we take our experiences and reach an understanding of God or will we let his word stand and those things that are true about his word, will we let those truths interpret how we make sense of our experiences? You see, a common factor in your life and in my life, a commonality in each of our lives is that you and I do not live by what happens to us. You and I do not live merely by what we see unfolding around us. You and I live in light of how we interpret what is happening to us. You and I live in response to how we interpret what we see unfolding around us. And so if we take our experiences 
and we try to understand God in light of our experiences, we will conclude that God is either not good or he's not very capable or he's not very smart. Or if we interpret our experiences in light of what we know to be true about God, we will look at any host of challenges and sufferings and afflictions and difficulties, and we will understand those in light of God's good, wise, powerful uh, purposes for our lives. Second thing I want to touch on briefly not only is Habakkuk responding to God's ways, but Habakkuk is being directed now by the Lord as he begins to speak to rest in God's ways. And the Lord answered me, verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk, you got a pen and pencil? Write this down. I'm sure he didn't have a, a fountain pen like, like I do, but you, you, you get the point. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may read, uh, so, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. That's a hard word. God and I disagree on issues of timing a lot. And while there is no more sympathetic being than God, he sent his own son to sympathize with us, God does does not empathize with us. When we think God's timing is off, God doesn't say, well, you're right. God says, wait for it. Oh, it's hard letting God be God, but there's really no other choice in the universe, is there? He's going to be God whether you let him or not. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. I'm I'm right on time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's, It's going to happen when I say it's going to happen, and you can count on that. It's absolutely true. If it seems slow... Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's not derailed or sidetracked or hit a snag somewhere. Isn't that a hard word to someone who's dazed and confused? There are times that that, that you and I need to hear soft and gentle words. And there are times when you and I need to hear very clear and forceful words. The Lord deems that this is one of those times. It's still going to happen in my appointed time. I will not lie. Wait for it. It will not delay. What's he supposed to do in the meantime? 
I mean, come on. It, it, it still appears as though the, the, the wicked are overtaking. It still appears as like no one good is ruling. It still appears as though the wicked are victorious. It still appears as though the wicked are actually gloating or prideful in, uh, in their apparent alleged victory. And this seems to go on this way forever. Until it's appointed time, says the God who will not lie, who tells us in the meantime, wait, who explains he's not been delayed. And yet what I want us to see is what happens next, what he says next in verse 4. This would be the, the, the passage that we would most circle around for a few moments because as the Lord has begun speaking in verse 2 and in verse 3, as he has instructed Habakkuk to write these things out, um, he, what he has begun to do is uh, issue a series of warnings and promises. Now, we won't even get to the warnings. Beginning in verse 6 all the way through verse 20, the Lord will issue five taunts. And each taunt consists of a woe, it consists of a reason for the woe, and it consists of the, uh, the certainty of that woe unfolding. And in particular, he's, he's explaining in the near fulfillment of this what will happen eventually to the Babylonians. And with, within, within a matter of decades from the time that Habakkuk writes these words, the Babylonians will be no more. Woe had, will have come to them. God will raise up the Persians and, and destroy the Babylonians. He says, now Habakkuk, write this down. In verses 6 through 20 is Habakkuk writing down what the Lord says decades before it happens, what will happen to the Babylonians. And in particular, what will happen to the Babylonians in the immediate or the nearness of these applications. But I think we can extract out of this uh, in a broader way this is verses 6 through 20 is the is a description of the fate of the wicked there is no future in being wicked it's a life of woe partially at this moment but it's a life of woe completely in the next life Don't interpret God's slowness as though he'll never get around to implementing his woe. In fact, if you're here this morning, as Freddie has already explained to us, and you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, actually his slowness is a sign of his patient love. It does have an expiration date. But on this morning, his slowness is actually a grace. His slowness is so that you would turn from yourself and turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and avert the hell that awaits. 
an eternal life of woe is the fate of the wicked. But then he shifts uh, in, 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 in verse 4. Uh, he, I would suggest to you that he references the righteous because he's declaring, in contrast to the fate of the wicked, he's declaring our, uh, the, the future of the righteous. And what's most helpful about verse 4 is he not only declares the future of the righteous, but as we zone in on verse 4 in particular, just for a few moments, we can see a glimpse of who are the righteous. That, that's the big quandary for me, at least. It's not a quandary for me that a just God would, would judge wicked people. If you've read your Bibles very long, you would, you would see that's a duh kind of conclusion. The most fascinating th thing to me as I read through the scriptures is not the fate of the wicked, but the future of the righteous. And in particular, who are these righteous? I don't know about you, but I don't feel very righteous. Oh, I'm probably better than some of you, although you, you probably are, most of you are a lot better than me in terms of that scale, but that's the problem. It's like, this is not a, this is not a horizontal scale. This is a vertical scale. In spite, and not in spite, in light of the, of the pure holiness of God that was referenced earlier in chapter 1, I don't feel very righteous at all. Yet this is where verse 4 is so hugely important. It's important in the context here of Habakkuk. But it's so interesting. Verse 4 is this little bitty obscure drive-by book of a minor prophet, verse 4 of chapter 2 is quoted three times in the New Testament, twice by the Apostle Paul and once by the writer of the book of Hebrews. Like, what's, a, what's an obscure minor prophet and an obscure verse in an obscure minor prophet? Uh, why is it such a big deal by the time we run to the New Testament? Well, let's look at the verse. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. There's a contrast here. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Two kinds of people listed here. Those who are of an arrogant heart now, in this context, it's obvious to see that the first group of people who are of an arrogant heart would be the Babylonians, that Habakkuk is um, trying to understand what's going to happen to, to those guys. 
But the arrogant of heart is not merely the Babylonians. The arrogant of heart could also include when you and I lash out at God over the slowness at which he is running his universe. I mean, this is, this is a hard thing to say, but there's only one ultimate explanation as to why you and I would set up and try to judge God and put him in the docket and call him to a given account. We have an arrogant heart. And yet in contrast to an arrogant heart is a heart, second part of verse 4, that is reliant upon the Lord. But the righteous shall live by his faith. I would suggest to you that this is nothing other than a direct call, a a shout out to Habakkuk, a shout out to Judah, a shout out to us this morning that you and I are called to trust the Lord. We're called to believe God, we're called to have faith in God. I don't think it's no mistake that in this context of issuing this call to trust in the Lord, that the Lord has just prior to that instructed Habakkuk to write these things down. That's a very helpful indicator as to what is the nature of faith. What is faith? Because unless we know what faith is... We won't be able to answer the question, who is righteous? This is where sometimes we get confused. Our culture is not helpful at this moment. Sometimes faith is associated with optimism. Now, I've got no qualms against optimism. In fact, I would rather hang out with optimistic people than pessimistic people. You say, oh, that explains why Joe doesn't like me. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. But... Wouldn't you rather hang out with someone who's optimistic? Uh, Now, I understand sometimes in their Pollyanna viewpoint, it gets a little irritating. But overall, we'd rather hang. but, But optimism is not the same thing as faith. Faith, at its essence, is taking God at his word. Faith doesn't simply generically believe whatever is in our heart to believe. Faith listens to what God says and it embraces, accepts, relies upon what God has said. That's why this connection, the, the, the righteous shall live by his faith, I'd suggest to you is inseparably connected to the fact that God has just told Habakkuk to write some things down. Because, because what things God has written down, when you and I embrace and believe and, and rely upon and depend upon what God has said in his word, we, we accept the warnings and we cling to the promises. When we do that, we are believing God. Secondly, This call to trust the Lord, which is connected to the things that are written down. Faith is believing what God has said. Secondly, uh, faith is connected to whose words they are that we are embracing. 
We, we, why, do we, why do we take these words to be true? Because they were written by the one who can't do anything but be truthful. So it's not, it's not literally that these are words, but it's literally whose words these are. So, the call to trust God is a call to believe what God says in his word. And we believe what God says in his word because we are embracing the one who spoke these words. And the reason that we embrace the one who spoke these words is because the one who speaks these words is the one who is faithful and true. In other words, God is trustworthy. And so we rely upon, we depend upon, we rest in what he says. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So, to the one who trusts God, who takes him at his word, because it's his word, he trusts in him and his word. This passage teaches us that to the one who takes God at his word and believes what God has said, that one who has that kind of faith is regarded as righteous in the sight of God, not wicked. So who is righteous? The one who trusts in the Lord, the one who takes what God has said in his word to be true. Such a one is regarded as righteous in the sight of God. Such a one being regarded as righteous in the sight of God is one who can live in a proper relationship with the Lord. That's what Habakkuk understood. That's what the Lord taught Habakkuk from verse 4. Habakkuk, if you want to be in right relationship with me, if you want to be regarded as righteous in my eyes and not cast aside as one of the wicked, then you will take what I say and you will trust in it because you are trusting in the one who is saying these things. Major shift from Habakkuk in the Old Testament to now the New Testament is how the New Testament uses these words. I won't go into it, but you could jot this down for future reference in Romans 1.17, in Galatians 3.11, and in Hebrews 10.36-38. It quotes Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And in particular, in each of those contexts, the 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 the, the object of that reliance moves from God in general, which was Habakkuk. Habakkuk was to trust in the Lord and therefore accept these promises that God had gave to him. To In the New Testament, that broader trusting in the Lord becomes a very specific and narrow revelation of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The one who turns to Christ and trusts only in him is the one who will be seen as righteous in the sight of God. The one who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ will never be seen as righteous. No amount of moral dogmatisms, no amount of Old Testament law keeping, no amount of religious um, uh, schemes and 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 uh, strategies would would garner us a standing of righteousness. Not to the one who works, but to the one who trusts in Jesus. His faith is counted as righteousness. And here's why believing in Jesus is the only thing that could enable people like you and I who would otherwise be wicked to be regarded as righteous. And that is that God the Father sent forth his son Jesus to be a substitute. You and I may not feel the burden of this, but... but, but I'll put it this way, I'll throw it out there, and that is, if God was to pardon the wicked, God would not be just. But if God was to punish the wicked, each of us would be in hell. That's a whole lot of tension that the scriptures put in front of us. But God reconciles that tension by sending his son, the perfect son of God, who obeyed the law flawlessly, who lived a life of perfect righteousness, who pleased the father in every way imaginable. And yet this perfect son of God went to the cross And there upon the cross, he took upon himself sins, not his own. He didn't have any, but the sins of people like you and I. And he bore up under the curse and the condemnation and the judgment of our sins so that any and all, even this morning, who look to Jesus and trust only in him, the very righteous God himself would declare us righteous in his sight because God has taken our sin and placed it upon his son Jesus who knew no sin so that you and I might be the righteousness of God. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for the righteous shall live by his faith. And this trusting in Jesus is is not just simply a mental comprehension. It is something that alters the very trajectory of our life. Trusting in Jesus results in those who trust him to be those who now follow him. We live by this faith until our faith becomes sight. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you have sent to rescue people like us. We're thankful that Jesus has accomplished his purpose. We're thankful 
We're thankful that the gospel has been proclaimed to us so that we would know what to do with Jesus. We would trust in him. And Father, may our hearts be erupted with love. For he who is forgiven much loves much. So Father, may with grateful hearts we express a love to you and a love to each other, demonstrating that our life is now ordered by our faith in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray.